Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for August 29th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to catch up on an email in the mailbag and discuss the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Y Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. Uh, I want to apologize to everybody. Uh, we put the podcast up, and in, if you downloaded the podcast yesterday, the, the Water Cooler podcast in the first like hour or so, one of the audio tracks was off slightly. You could still listen to it, but it was whatever. We fixed it within an hour, uh, so hopefully you heard the correct version. But uh, if you did not hear the correct version, that you know, an editing mishap just happened. Producing five shows a week, uh, sometimes something falls through the tracks, and I apologize. It's totally my fault. Uh, but let's let's get into the mailbag. Uh, I just have one email here I wanted to read. This is from Jesse from Michigan. Uh, he writes in uh, in reference to the Disney streaming service price uh, that we talked about. Uh, he says, everybody thinking that $6 was too low, you realize that other streaming services have to license the content, which is part of the price that you're paying for as the customer. Well, with Disney, they already own the content they're streaming. Any revenue from the service is just gravy for them. Uh, they don't need to cha- charge a, charge an arm and a leg, uh, and at that price, who wouldn't subscribe? Um, I wanted to respond to this because I think a lot of people probably assume this to be true, but the thing you're missing here is when Disney starts a streaming service, they're pulling all their content off of other streaming services, and that includes Netflix. Uh, I, I know... Uh, uh, some people, I think UBS did a study on this uh, or did a report on this, and it, it came to like I think uh, Disney makes two point or, or makes two point one billion dollar no two point six billion dollars off licensing their TV and movies to other platforms, which they probably are going to lose all that two point six billion dollars each year by you know putting it all on their streaming platform. And in addition to that, they're expected to spend another eight hundred million on original content for the service. So, uh, you know, combined, that's uh, what uh, three point four billion dollars that uh, they are, 
you know, at a loss from the previous year, uh, just an investment for the streaming service. So, uh, you know, at $6 a head, uh, they will need something like 45 million subscribers to be profitable or to break even rather. So that's a lot of subscribers. I, I assume that the price is going to go up at some point. Uh, but I wouldn't just assume that, you know, everything is gravy. They, you know, uh, the stockholders are going to be pretty pissed off if, if, if they're, they're only making a fraction of uh, all that money that they made, you know, licensing off their content to, you know, HBO, Netflix, and uh, even their like Disney Channel shows and stuff they license for like 600 million dollars to other services so it's a it's a pretty penny and uh i'm sure they're gonna break even i'm sure it's gonna be a huge success but uh i i do think uh i do think this uh, the the service fee is is probably a low introductory thing to get people uh you know subscribed and eventually they're gonna they're gonna have to raise it uh but anyways uh do you guys have any thoughts on this I'm surprised that they're only spending 800 million in original content, uh, Disney, because I feel like Netflix is spending billions of dollars a year on original content, and that's supposedly their biggest competitor in this arena. So <laughs> you would think that Disney would be well, coming out of the gate with uh, with a lot more money, you know, right to start. But who knows? Well, okay, this comes from that UBS uh, um, study, and they they estimate that they're going to do four to five movies per year at fifty million dollars per film, and that they're going to do four to five series a year uh, at uh, half a million an episode for thirteen episodes, uh, and all that adds up to about uh, eight hundred million dollars. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it could be that they're doing a lot more than that. Um, I, I know this study that came out when they originally announced the service, uh, they assumed that Disney was going to charge $9 for the service and that it would take 32 million subscribers to break even. Um, so, I mean, this is all estimates. We don't know uh, any of the actual numbers. Uh, you could be right. They could be spending way more than that uh, $800 million in original content each year. Um so, uh, HT, any thoughts? Uh, not particularly. I mean, I am a little surprised at the uh, only, uh, was it 800 million, 80 million, I'm sorry? 800 million. 800 million. Yeah. Um, because there are some feature films that they're producing yeah. for the streaming service as well, such as Lady and the Tramp, which I felt like would be slightly higher priced, but uh, maybe not. Well, you also have to consider, like, do you think... Um... You know, Netflix doesn't market their movies that much. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I do see some billboards in L.A. and stuff, but like I, from an overall view of people I talk to, it doesn't seem like they see advertising for Netflix movies and TV shows that often. Do you think Disney, when they you know produce these original movies like Lady and the Tramp and Magic Camp and all, all those things for this streaming service, do you think we're going to see trailers on TV, like TV spots and stuff like that? Or do you think like it's going to be like Netflix where it's just going to be advertisements for, you know, the product, the, the streaming service as a whole? Mm. Mm, that's a good question. I feel like Disney's marketing machine is just so strong that they'll probably stick to their traditional route of doing trailers for these movies. Um, and I feel like Netflix's one vice is that they don't market their films. Uh, they just spend billions on uh, incurring as much content as possible. So I feel like Disney could like get a leg up by actually marketing these films because they do put like the work into it. 
Yeah, it's just I, I'm thinking like you know, usually if you make a fifty million dollar movie, you're ad, you know spending forty million dollars on advertising to make you know to get people to go see that movie. But you know, with this changing business models, who knows what's going to happen? Uh, we'll have to keep an eye on it. Uh, I, those are only the estimates, as I said. Uh, but uh, there is a lot of money invested in here, even though they already own all the content. Okay, guys, let's let's talk about the news. Uh, the first story on our list is kind of breaking news. Yes, yesterday we learned that Alex Baldwin was going to pl- uh, join the Joker movie as Bruce Wayne's father. But uh, just as we started to record this podcast, uh, that came into some doubt. Uh, ben, what do we know? Yeah, so Alec Baldwin was originally cast to play Thomas Wayne in Todd Phillips' upcoming film, which is just called Joker, that stars uh, Joaquin Phoenix in the title role. And uh, Baldwin just told USA Today, I'm no longer doing that movie. And he's blaming scheduling issues as the uh, the reason for that. So um, <laughs> this is kind of a strange turn of events here uh, because Alec Baldwin, I mean, it's like it's very rare that you'll see a casting announcement go out and then within a day uh, an actor immediately drop out or, or just like straight up uh, deny being a part of a project like this. So uh, he said, I'm sure there are 25 guys who can play that part. Um, And there had been some uh, discussion about, Thomas Wayne, who is uh, the father of Bruce Wayne, who plays Bat or who is Batman, the character of Batman in these movies. Uh, There had been some discussion about this version of Thomas Wayne in this movie being a cheesy and tanned businessman who is more in the mold of a 1980s Donald Trump. And Trump, of course, uh, is one of Baldwin's characters that he plays on Saturday Night Live. So uh, I I was saying, you know, in the the original incarnation of this, when we thought that Baldwin was actually going to be playing this character, I thought that was you know, in keeping with what this movie has been doing, uh, cast that casting was very on the nose. But it seems like something has just fallen apart in the last minutes here. Um, Peter, what do you make of this? I, I don't know what to make of this because we had this weird tweet from Alec Baldwin this morning being like, I'm not in this movie. And like people weren't sure if he was joking or or what was going on. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I like the idea of Alec Baldwin as Thomas Wayne, uh, what do we know about Thomas Wayne's role in this movie? Do we do we know anything at all beyond the Trump esque take on the character? No, not really. Um, I mean, in the comics, he was you know a, a wealthy sort of philanthropist, and uh, he and of course Martha Wayne get murdered uh, after exiting a theater, and he's you know he dies right in front of young Bruce Wayne, and that sort of prov- provides the jumping off point for the origin story of Batman. So I, I assumed that we were going to see. Thomas and Martha Wayne get gunned down in the streets again uh, in this movie, even though we've seen that particular uh, sequence play out in almost every Batman property that has existed in the past few years. So, yeah, I don't know. We don't know uh, about like what level of um, of role this was supposed to be or how it was going to factor into the story, which is largely based on uh, the comic The Killing Joke. And it's supposed to be sort of like a dark mid-budget crime drama instead of a like an out and out traditional superhero movie ht yeah. are, are, are we missing out on uh alec baldwin playing a trump-esque character yet again on uh in media 
Oh, I, I very much dislike that description of that character because it felt like very antithetical to what Thomas Wayne was, at least in the comics and in like Batman's sort of legacy uh, in terms of just like inspiring Bruce Wayne to take on the mantle of Batman because he was always a, a doctor and philanthropist who was trying to do well and use his wealth to, you know, um, aid Gotham's economy. But when I heard this news, I remember thinking that I felt like they were tying it into sort of the origin story that we saw in Tim Burton's Batman, in which the Joker was the one who killed uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne. So I was wondering, like, are they going to go for some sort of different origin story with Bruce Wayne? Is Thomas Wayne going to be somewhat more involved in the mob underbelly of Gotham or is somewhat involved in the Joker story? So it was a, it's a, it, this is a very strange turn of events, and I don't really know what to make of it. I mean, I do like the idea that the Wayne... Uh, family was in some way responsible for the Joker rise, um, that there is this parallel between Batman and the Joker. Uh, I also, um, I know, Ben, you're mocking the fact that they're going to, they could potentially show uh, the assassination of uh, Bruce Wayne's parents again on uh, film, but I, I think it would be cool to see that in, a different perspective, you know, we're seeing it from the Joker's perspective, right? And we're, we're seeing it in, you know, the a di- a entirely different context of a story uh, where that is not the starting point of something that that's probably like in the climactic events of the story, I would assume. You could be right. And I think the killing joke, um, the, the character of the Joker is like a failed stand up comedian. And we know that they're keeping that uh, conceit alive for this movie. And he sort of gets roped into a life of crime because he's such he's so bad at his stand up job that he has to, um, you know, take this this crime job in order to support his family. And so I'm wondering if maybe. Joaquin Phoenix's character is going to be the one who is roped into actually killing the parents. Like, you know, we've seen that the Joker uh, was the person who executed uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne in uh, Tim Burton's Batman movie. But it's been a lot of different characters over the years, like Joe Chill and and all these other characters like that in the in the Nolan verse. It was Joe Chill and in the comics as well. So um, I, I wonder if like like you're saying, Peter, if that's an opportunity for like Joaquin Phoenix to play this sort of like haunted guy who you know really regrets being boxed into having to kill these people even though that's not something that he wants to do and that would be a good way for them to show us that scene uh, from a different angle that we haven't seen before oh for sure and one thing uh, when you were just talking about uh him playing this comedian character i was just wondering you know walking phoenix is uh kind of like one of those method actors am i correct yeah that? i think so yeah. i think that's true yeah do, do you think we'll see like Joaquin Phoenix end up showing up at like these like open mic nights, like, you know, just in character trying to, you know, find his role. Do you think that's Hmm. a possibility? Um, (laughs) that's interesting. But I I mean, I think that the thing is, he's supposed to be bad at it. And so I don't know. He's showing up to these open mic nights to completely bomb on on purpose, maybe (laughs) in disguise. So people don't know it's a Joaquin Phoenix. I don't know. I, I, if I was you and I was in L.A. and you're interested in this movie, you're a DC fan, I, I would be I'd be uh, sleeping outside all these wa- open mic nights for the possibility of that <laughs> happening. I, I, I'm, I'm joking. OK, uh, let, let, let's move on uh, to a bit of uh, Amazon news, uh, Am- news that Amazon might develop original movies alongside some studios 
in the possibility of them adding ads to their streaming service. HT, you're at the sub for the site. What do we know? Yes. So when we talk about Amazon, we mean Amazon Prime because as we know, Amazon Studios has been distributing award-winning acclaimed films for the past few years now. But Amazon Prime has been sort of uh, trailing behind in terms of like Netflix, for example, for its original movies, although its original shows have had its their own acclaim uh, with such as shows like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Transparent. So Amazon is reportedly talking to major Hollywood studios such as Sony, Paramount, to create films for its streaming service. Uh, but these talks are still in the early stages. No agreements have yet been reached. Uh, but apparently Amazon is looking for a new opportunity to exploit existing studio IP. So in this case, they're want, they want to sort of replicate the success that Paramount, ha- Paramount had with um Uh, the Cloverfield paradox in terms of the deal that they struck with Netflix, which is a win-win for both companies. Paramount avoided a box office bomb and Netflix got lots of word of mouth, which is their favorite thing. (laughs) So um, apparently Amazon is looking to sort of uh, make some sort of similar deals, perhaps save maybe some uh, studio, potential studio bombs uh, for their streaming service. Uh, Amazon Prime in particular, but potentially a new one, uh, which is the second part of the story. So uh, Amazon is reportedly um, looking into creating a new ad-supported video service that will be available exclusively on Fire TV. So this isn't Amazon Prime, which will be getting the ads, but a service tentatively titled Freedive, and it's being developed through Amazon's IMDb subsidiary subsidiary and will likely feature quote-unquote older tv shows uh in which if which amazon is currently in licensing talks with studios as well let's hope it doesn't use that dreaded uh, imdb video player which is just horrible (laughs) um i i don't know i think this is interesting this whole amazon developing original movies with studios because this is like I'm not sure if people know this, but uh, that are listening. But the way television works is like you know Warner Brothers will make a TV show and then sell it to you know CBS to air. So Warner Brothers is producing it, CBS is distributing it. We see that a lot in TV where like there's these cross studio productions, but we really haven't seen that in film. We you know it. Uh, I mean, I guess we see you know uh, studio partners like Blumhouse. You know are making films alongside the studio that they're you know officed with but we don't really see you know amazon hiring sony to to develop original content for their platform that's a little different than what we've seen in the past uh ben do you have any thoughts on this I, I just I'm not sure that I can fully wrap my head around this because I feel like wouldn't the natural thing be for Amazon Prime to partner with Amazon Studios? I, I guess maybe Amazon Studios just doesn't release the type of um, the type of content that they're looking for. Is that is that the well, is that the underlying thing here? I'm not sure why they wouldn't just team up with themselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because Amazon Studios films already get Amazon Prime releases after their theatrical releases, of course. Yeah, but um, I don't know. Maybe it's that they're looking for IP. Maybe they want, you know, to approach like Paramount to do like a Transformers spinoff just for Amazon. That's the only thing I can think of that like a studio, an outside studio could provide them that their own studio was is not capable of. Hmm. Um, I mean, I guess that's the case of the Cloverfield Paradox kind of, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, what do you guys think of this free Amazon streaming service? Uh, 
Ben, do you have any thoughts on that one? Uh, I don't have Amazon Fire, but, you know, I, I like the option. I like the idea of the option being out there for people. I think that's, you know, I, I used to watch Hulu years ago before they went to, like, the subscription thing where you have to pay for it. And um, I always thought that was kind of cool. Like, yeah, you have to put up with ads, but that's, you know, it's just it's one more place for it's it's a way for, like, the democratization of uh, of, of content to be, you know, spread yeah. out among everyone. So I, I think that's a cool option. And, of course, like, yeah, you can pay for a different service if you don't want any ads on there. But, yeah, I, I like the idea in theory. HD, would you, you watch a advertised, supported Amazon streaming service? Actually, I think it's not a bad idea because currently Amazon Prime, you can only get through the entire Amazon Prime package. And I like the Which idea has of having... become expensive over the years. It's very expensive. Um, and while like the delivery uh, fee is like really good sort of um, like partnership with that, I think the idea of having a streaming service on its own is a really good idea, especially on a device like the Fire Stick, which is so cheap. Um, and it could partner, it could rival other devices like the Roku, for example. And I don't mind ads. I'm, I'm probably one of the few millennials who doesn't mind them. I kind of just zone out a lot during them. It's a good, it's actually a good time to like check your phone, which is another sort of millennial thing. But, um, I don't mind them. Like even on Hulu when I'm watching shows and they, they go back to like the old, old school commercial breaks. It's, it doesn't really bother me that much. See, I don't know. That's where I, I think I differ. I, 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 and probably for the same reason you like ads is the reason why I don't like ads because it takes me away from the experience and I usually get sidetracked in like, you know, looking at my Instagram or Facebook or whatever on my phone. And then when it comes back on, I'm distracted. Um, I don't know. And I just feel like I, I have such limited time nowadays that when I'm spending my time on entertainment, I, I would rather just, you know, pay the premium. Like I, I've talked in the past, I pay for the YouTube premium to skip the ads on YouTube videos. I actually pay for the, the Hulu, the premium Hulu uh, to skip the ads on Hulu, so I'm I'm not beyond paying more to skip ads. I I, I like that services offer that, um, but it sounds like this one won't. Or will this? Because this doesn't sound like it's going to be a free version of Amazon Prime, right? It's something different. It's something different, but it's still very early in talks. So I'm not sure exactly what it will encompass. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, news comes that they are adding new voices to the tomato meter, uh, focusing on inclusion and new media platforms. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, so Rotten Tomatoes uh, put out a press release yesterday saying that um, they have revamped their criteria to allow um, different critics to come on board and, and have their voices count toward the tomato meter, which is, uh, as everyone probably knows, the um, basically like the aggregation of uh, critical opinion about a movie. And it, it's not necessarily like the, uh, you know, a pure representation of how much everyone likes a movie. It's just a collection of opinions, weathering, uh, like measuring whether critics find a film fresh or rotten. Um, I have a lot of personal gripes with Rotten Tomatoes as an organization, but the idea that they have have open their doors. Uh, they, they recently just uh, accepted over 200 new tomato meter approved critics. And, um, and they're now including uh, podcasts and digital video shows as uh, a way to, as a platform that can be acceptable for people to contribute to that tomato meter. Um, I, like I said, I, I'm not a big fan of Rotten Tomatoes as an organization because of, of like what they have done to the idea of film criticism, which I feel like 
the larger community, uh, you know, people generally, you know, I'm speaking very generally across the population here. I feel like people just, you know, go in and look at the number and make their decision that way instead of actually engaging with written reviews or, or or any sort of a critical analysis of a, of a movie rotten tomatoes has sort of streamlined it down into and simplified it into this one single thing and that number is very important still for studios and critics um and and filmmakers but uh but yeah the idea that they're opening their doors and and sort of letting all of these new voices come in there this is actually benefits freelance film critics which is really great because a lot of times they i mean in the nature of freelance you're publishing in a bunch of different uh, publications so you can't necessarily find the consistency that the rotten tomatoes used to require for you to be accepted into their ranks. So um, this is a really cool thing. I mean, it, it gives people more of a voice and it, it actually gives that number that I'm not so crazy about. It, it makes it more um, reflective of the general, uh, you know, like the the diverse, all these diverse uh, views instead of just being old white men who write for <laughs> newspapers, you know? Yeah. Rotten Tomatoes has uh, been very stringent on who they have accepted into their platform for many years. Uh, Slash Film wasn't a part of Rotten Tomatoes until, I think, last year. Um, the Slash Film cast, because it was a podcast, has been running for 10 years now and has not been accepted because they didn't accept podcasts until now. And they're now going to be part of the Tomato Meter, which is exciting. Um, I don't know. I, I, I do get why people don't like Rotten Tomatoes and what it has done. But in the end, I don't think any of these people that are going to Rotten Tomatoes to look at this number are people that would have engaged in reading reviews or, you know, they would have clicked on a review and went to the bottom to see the rating or whatever. Um, I don't think the the people that are look, looking at the number only are the type of people that are, miss, you know, missing out on anything they would have. Um, I do think Rotten Tomatoes is good because generally um when something is fresh it is a you know a, a good movie worth watching and uh if if it has convinced um you know these people that are not willing or interested in engaging in film criticism to seek out better movies and not see bad movies uh i think that's a good thing um, and now, as you say, it's going to be more inclusive, more uh, diversive uh, sampling, which uh, helps out in the end. HG, do you have any thoughts on this? I think this is a really good move on Rotten Tomatoes' part because they're they're basically you know taking action with their their influence base. They're acknowledging the influence that they have and using that to uh, a better goal in terms of diversity and media criticism. So I like this move a lot, and I hope that it will make them be more uh, a sign of them being sensitive to what kind of actions they make because they are quite a powerful force, I think, in the media industry. Yeah. Do you ever think, like, I think the real danger of Rotten Tomatoes is the binary approach of it's either good or it's not. Um, mm -hmm. It's either fresh or it's rotten. Do you think that they will ever adapt to, I know that, like, on, if you go to any given, uh, you know, film page on there, you can actually see what the average film rating score is but it's kind of hidden like do you think they'll ever adapt like a more kind of like uh diverse scoring offering like or do you think they're always going to just stick to this fresh rotten approach 
I think they'll probably stick to the fresh rotten approach because it's worked for them. It's kind of what they're famous for. Um, but I do wish they would make uh, it more clear and easier to go through to the actual reviews themselves and see what those those uh, individual score, scores are. Um, so, yeah, I think that would benefit like their sort of reputation in general. Uh, but I, I kind of I agree with you, Peter. I think that Rotten Tomatoes is best as more of a launching pad and a way to find out about the specifics of individual reviewers. I I do wish, um, you know, Rotten Tomatoes is making so much money off all the work of all these reviewers. I do wish that they would, you know, invest in a recommendation engine of like, you know, if I go on Rotten Tomatoes and I say I like this movie, this movie and this movie, um, maybe it would then recommend critics that also are, you know, share my view. And then there'll be like a section on there of like, you know, critics that are like, uh, have similar opinions so then I can now find uh, tastemakers that uh, might align with my what I'm looking for in uh, movies what that's guys... a really cool idea and the, the work is already done on their part because all of the critics uh, ratings are already logged in their system so it, yeah. it would just be basically creating like a, a search I mean I'm not a, a website yeah. engineer so I don't know exactly how you would do that <laughs> but it sounds like it would be relatively easy to do yeah I mean it's how all recommendation engines are built on of like if person a likes a b and c and person b likes a b and c then you recommend what you know person c also likes it's usually what they do with like movie recommendation engine but instead of recommending the movies you could be recommending the critics as well as the movies i think yeah i like that idea yeah um i should pitch it to rotten tomatoes i I shouldn't have put it on this podcast now i'm I'm losing (laughs) out on all that money uh let's let's move on to uh news that michael jackson's thriller in 3d is getting an imax theatrical release hd what do we know So on the heels of Michael Jackson's birthday, which is today, um, happy birthday, Michael Jackson in heaven. Uh, So um, the IMAX and Michael Jackson estate have announced that they're teaming up to release the digitally remastered Michael Jackson's Thriller 3D in IMAX theaters this September for a week, starting September 21st, 2018. And these... uh, the, the showings of the Michael Jackson Thriller 3D will show ahead of Eli Ross, The House with a Clock in Its Walls. And uh, this is uh, following the premiere of this remastered version at the um, Venice Film Festival last year. And this will be the second sort of theatrical release of this um, short film after it was first released in theaters in 1983. The house with the clock in its walls is an hour and 45 minutes long. So adding this on makes it about a two hour experience plus, you know, trailers. Uh, sounds about right. I, I loved Thriller when I was a kid. I've never seen it in 3D on the big screen. Um, so maybe uh, maybe this is going to get me to actually go see uh, the, <laughs> the new Eli Roth movie. Uh, ben, are, are you going to go see it to see Thriller on the big screen? I feel like that's just sort of an added bonus because that movie, I mean, I'm very hit or miss when it comes to Eli Roth films, but that movie <laughs> kind of looks like fun. It's it's Jack Black and Kate Blanchett like vamping it up with uh, <laughs> in like a young adult magic story. I mean, sign me up. I'm, I'm there. I'm on Ben's side, too. I'm actually quite excited for this movie. It looks so fun and silly and very anti Eli Roth, um, but I I'm very excited to see uh, both of these together because I feel like they're the perfect sort of Halloween pairing. 
Okay, let's move on to our next story. Uh, that is that Wiley Coyote is going to get his own movie. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, so uh, Warner Brothers is developing a movie called Coyote vs. Acme. And we really don't know much about this. We know that it's a Wiley Coyote, uh, Coyote movie. The character obviously uh, is famous from the Looney Tunes cartoons where he was chasing around the Roadrunner, always trying to eat him, and then using Acme products, which is this fake company. Uh, and all these products, of course, would just like explode or be faulty in some way. And um, and of course, the, the coyote would basically just, you know, fall into a chasm or uh, explode in some way. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a very famous character. Um, we don't know exactly what the story itself will be about, although Chris Evangelista, who wrote this article about this, found out that uh, there was a writer named Ian Frazier who collected uh, who wrote a collection of humorous essays called Coyote v. Acme. And in the book, there is a uh, a story about the opening statement of an attorney representing Wiley Coyote in a product liability suit against the Acme company, <laughs> supplier of unpredictable rocket sleds and faulty spring powered shoes. So it sounds like it might be like a courtroom drama where uh, Wiley Coyote is suing this company who is has always just, um, <laughs> you know, been screwing him over for years as he's been trying to kill the the roadrunner. So that would be kind of cool um, if we if it turned out to be something like that. And maybe you could have it where it's like, I don't know, like the social network where it's like a courtroom thing is happening on one layer. And then there's like flashbacks that are, you know, to each of the individual um, uh, instances or, or scenarios where <laughs> these products screw up. What is going on here? Is, is this an animated film? I don't even know the answer to that. I know that uh, that John and Josh Silberman are have been hired to write, and they have worked on um, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and Border Town, uh, a show called Zack Stone is going to be famous. And we know that Chris McKay, who is a producer of the Lego movie and the Lego Batman movie, um, is going to be uh, on board as a producer here. We're not sure who's going to be directing yeah. it or, or like what, yeah, what style of movie this is going to be, because I think the Looney Tunes have appeared, I mean, obviously in Space Jam in like a live action hybrid uh capacity before so I, it's not it wouldn't be unprecedented if they did something like that this time um it, i mean mckay's involvement makes me think that you know it might be animated uh i don't know this is so strange i do think it, it, warner brothers has kind of dropped the ball and uh you know doing looney tunes movies i know we did a story a little bit uh a few months back that they're bringing back looney tunes shorts i think for television or something but i, I don't know i just feel like uh looney tunes could have been to warner brothers what uh you know mickey and all those characters are to disney and i feel like uh warner brothers has kind of you know kept them locked up on the the lot for the most part uh, other than mm -hmm. you know saturday saturday morning uh cartoons uh but uh um by the way uh this just in uh, a bunch of release date news just hit uh the top gun sequel maverick has been pushed from uh july 2019 to june 2020 and a quiet place sequel has been dated for uh may 15th 2020 uh, I guess there's probably not much to talk about there, uh, but I thought I'd mention it since uh, you know it, it broke while we were on the air. And let's let's get to our last and final story because we are running a little late on this podcast, and that uh, is that First Man 
has had its first screenings and the early buzz is through the roof. HT, you did a roundup of all the reviews and all the reactions. Uh, what are people saying about First Man? Yeah, so um, Damien Chazelle's latest movie, First Man, uh, debuted at the Venice International Film Festival and critics are over the moon for it. No one laughed at that. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I was on mute. I was laughing on mute. Okay. Um, so uh, critics are calling it a revelatory and spectacular drama. Uh, Variety's Owen Gleiberman called it uh, the a, a space drama that makes Apollo 13 look like a puppet show. Um, the playlist calls it uh, a, a giant leap for the Apollo 11 mission and a satisfying the old-fashioned epic that will be may, may well become the definitive moon landing movie. People are praising Ryan Gosling and Claire Foy's performances. Uh, Ryan Gosling play, plays Neil Armstrong in this biopic, and generally everyone is just um, universally um, praising this film. A few people are somewhat device, uh, divided on the uh, sort of dizzying in-your-face editing that this film employs and some of the more visceral set pieces. But uh, over, overall, people are really um, in, in a really positive about this film. I am so excited for this film, uh, especially after seeing that IMAX preview that I talked about previously on uh, Slash Film Daily. Uh, I am a little curious how, you know, there isn't really a lot of drama with this mission and I, I'm, I'm really wondering what, like, the climactic sequence of this movie is. Um, but it's, I'm glad to hear that uh, people are digging it. Uh, ben, are you excited for First Man? I'm very excited, but I'm also, like you, very curious as to, you know, like, the the drama isn't, is this mission going to work? Because it's based on a true story, and we know that it does. Um, and, and it's not even like Apollo 13, where it's like, uh, you may have heard about the story, but seeing the actual bones of how they managed to uh, fix their problems out in space and then and figure out a way to get back to Earth is like the interesting part of it. This, it's like, I, I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned, or not concerned, <laughs> but, but curious about like what exactly the dramatic tension or, or conflict might be in this movie. But uh, I'm very excited. I've been excited ever since it was first announced. And um, hearing these, uh, these reactions is, uh, <laughs> you know, makes me look forward to it even more. HG, how about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for this film. I'm kind of hit or miss with Damien Chazelle. I really enjoyed Whiplash, and I felt like, while I was entertained by La La Land, I felt like it was sort of, uh, it was definitely a little derivative and sometimes at points felt more homage than movie. But I am really excited for this film because it kind of has him stepping away from his jazzy roots. And um, I'm really intrigued by people's uh, descriptions of this sort of more visceral tone. It kind of reminds me of what uh, the reactions to Dunkirk were and like, how that kind of played over as a war film in that it was more about the experience than anything. And I've read the description saying that it's more about setting you in the mind of Neil Armstrong and like that really claustrophobic um, atmosphere and experience that he has while being launched into this like tiny space kin, uh, tan, tiny space tin into the moon. So um, I'm wondering if that'll be the case and I'm really excited to see it. I mean, definitely what you're describing is what I saw in that IMAX preview, uh, which just has me so excited for this film as a, as a space geek. Um, anyways, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. HD, where can we find more of your work online? You can find me writing every day at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBooey. Ben, where can we find your work? 
I am at SlashFilm.com as well, and you can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. You can find me at SlashFilm on all social media. You can find all the stories we talked about on today's podcast on SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, as well as SlashFilm.com. Please, if you have any questions for us in the mailbag or just uh, comments, concerns, feedback, send it to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And as always, leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on the air. Please go rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.